1: Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Tracy Sagara. Oh, I love you so much, I just want to punch you. <laughs> that and more. But before that, listen to this.
2: I need to report an anonymous tip. This is
1: regarding what? This is regarding a mass suicide. On March 26,
3: 1997, in a San Diego mansion, 39 people were found
1: dead. The occupants, it was said, seemed to belong to some kind of cult. They called themselves Heaven's Gate. Now, Sheriff, they had a leader. Did they not marshal Applewhite? We came from distant space, and we're about to return. But the unanswered questions they left behind still linger.
4: If I could believe that they were brainwashed, it would be easier to just blame the two.
3: The largest mass suicide in American history is also one of the most misunderstood.
1: I would appreciate it if this tape would be between us. Okay. Bye bye. Coming October 18th from Stitcher in collaboration with Pineapple Street Media,
3: Heaven's Gate. Hosted by me, Glenn Washington. Subscribe now on Stitcher or wherever you listen to your podcast. To find out how you hear episodes one week early, ad free, go to
1: Heaven'sGate.show. Yes, indeed. Check out Heaven's Gate, the podcast. It's fascinating. Also, I've talked about CanaPet a few times on the show, but if you haven't checked them out, it's a perfect holiday gift for your pet. You just go to cana petcom that's C-A-N-N-A- pet.com, and use the code RISK at the checkout for 50% off your order, and give your pet the gift of good health for the holidays. Canapet is the leading CBD supplement for pets. The company makes all-natural, organic, and non-GMO capsules, liquid, and tasty biscuits in maple bacon, peanut butter and apple, or turkey dinner. The capsules and liquid can be mixed into your pet's food so you don't have to try to force them to eat a pill. This pet supplement is your go-to if your pet is suffering from pain, allergies, cancer, anxiety, arthritis, or seizures. But this is not pot for pets. The products are not sold in dispensaries, because Canapet is made from industrial hemp, not marijuana. That means it contains CBD, not THC, so it won't get your pet high. Actually, there's zero psychoactive effects. The product's fully legal and vet-recommended for dogs, cats, horses, and other animals, and they ship all over the U.S. The company has a nonprofit organization, Pet Conscious, that works with hundreds of rescue organizations around the US its mission is to build a better world for pets and they do so providing free products financial support and fundraising canapet is a holistic alternative to pharmaceuticals and no prescription is needed to purchase you can order online at cana petcom with the code risk for 50% off for customer testimonials and more information visit cana petcom okay This week's episode of Risk is a rerun of one of our classic Holiday Stories episodes, and next week we'll be premiering our all-new Holiday Stories episode of 2017. Now here's the show! Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Junior85, behind me now, and this is our holidays episode, our new one of 2016. Holy camoles, folks. (laughs) It's been one hell of a year, and I think a lot of us are pretty worried about what's coming up in years to come. But you know what? We had the whole Risk team out for dinner last night. Uh, We do this every year. We have a, just before the Christmas break, a, a dinner with everyone in New York City that works for Risk. A lot of our team is not in New York City. They're in places like Colorado or Los Angeles. But those that are here, we get together every year at this time for dinner. And we were talking about starting our own little circle, our own little communal meeting group that would meet maybe once a week or once every two weeks to talk about good things we can be doing in our community. Anyone can start a group like that, that just gets together and shares ideas for how to do good, how to be more civically involved and hash out. What are the smartest and most effective ways to help other people out? You know, we were saying at the dinner that this show really exemplifies that some of the most amazing stories, some of the most inspiring and profound stories are about people who went through really dark and challenging times. And some of the greatest heroes in all of history are people who stood by back up and turned things back around. So in a way, I think we could look at 2017 as a very exciting opportunity, a great challenge to make a great difference. Now, our holiday episodes often feature stories about Christmas, Hanukkah, New Year's, Thanksgiving. We've yet to have a best of us i think or a kwanzaa story but this year we have a Tishabob i think i said that right story as well uh, you'll you'll know more when we get there that's from danny labelle at the end of the episode in a little bit we're gonna hear from new york-based storyteller david who he has done a lot of stuff at the moth here in town and he's a wonderful guy But before that, we're going to start with one of our favorite storytelling discoveries of this year. Tracy Segarra, she was on the show just a couple months ago and was just absolutely fabulous. And here she is back again. She told this one at the Bell House, our recent show here in December in Brooklyn. Tracy Segarra with a story we call Like Family.
4: When I first meet Fred, we bond over Indian food and disco dancing and the fact that we're both clean and sober. But we come from very different worlds. He is born and raised in the Bronx and a lapsed Jehovah's Witness, this strange religion I like know nothing about. And me, I'm a middle class Jew from Long Island. So when we start dating, one of the things we eventually talk about is religion, right? So, I asked him to tell me a little bit about what being a witness was all about. And so, you know, he tells me it it involved, you know, going door to door, ringing doorbells with those awake magazines and trying to convert people. Even as a teenager, he did this. It's also like the religion of no. No birthdays, no holidays, no fun, so far as I can tell. So, I can understand why he left when he was like 19 or 20. Then it's time for me to tell him a little bit about what being a Jew is all about. Now I'm a lapsed Jew myself, but I went to Hebrew school, I had a bat mitzvah, I know things, you know? So it happens to be right around the Jewish holidays. So he asked me, he said, okay, well, what do you do for Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year? And so I think for a second and I'm like, I don't know, you blow the shofar. And he looks at me funny and it takes me a second. But I realized that the picture I have in my head of Cantor Altman making funny sounds come out of a ram's horn is entirely different than the image in his head, which is of a bunch of Jewish women all over the world on their knees giving blowjobs to limo drivers. (laughs) So, you know, we straightened that out and we continued to date. And as we get more into the relationship, it's time to meet our families. And so I meet his mother, Rita. And Rita is this bleached blonde, you know, Italian tough chick. You know, she was born and raised in the Bronx herself and, you know, raised five kids in this tiny apartment practically by herself. She was a waitress and a secretary and a devout Jehovah's Witness. And so when we meet, I can tell from the start that she is not all that enthralled with the fact that I'm dating her son, and she is polite, but cold. know, I'm 30 years old, I'm newly sober, I'm, you know, I'm, a mother is not, you know, high on my list of concerns, so I'm like, whatever. But then, about a year later, Fred and I decide to get married. And so I realized that now may be the time that I should start trying to develop some kind of relationship with this woman who's gonna be my mother-in-law, who's gonna be a part of my life. Based on one of the 27 bridal magazines that I have purchased immediately upon getting engaged, because I've been planning my wedding since I was five, I invite her to go wedding dress shopping with me. And she agrees. And when the day comes, I am not looking forward to this at all, she and I have never been alone in a room together, I don't know what we're gonna be talking about all day, so I'm not looking forward to this. But when we get to the bridal salon and I start trying on all these wedding gowns, she tells me that I look beautiful in every single one, which is a complete lie, (laughs) you know? But the sweetest of lies, and I feel myself starting to soften towards her. And then she takes me out for burgers afterwards and the conversation starts flowing a little more. And then we take the express bus back to the Bronx and when we get to the Bronx and it's time to you know, say goodbye, she grabs me and gives me a hug. And it's the kind of hug that tells me how much it meant to her that I invited her to do this with me. It breaks open a place in my heart for her and we start to become friends. After Fred and I get married, we move out to Long Island. They're still in the Bronx, but they come visit, you know, every couple of weekends. I quickly learned that two of Rita's favorite things are food and shopping. And so, you know, they come out to Long Island, we go to Freeport, we get these, you know, lobsters, we come back and we cover the dining room table with newspapers and and nobody can devour a lobster like Rita Romeo. I mean, she eats every edible portion of this lobster, parts that I didn't know were edible but she does, (laughs) and the two of us go shopping together, and she doesn't care, it can be a hardware store, a grocery store, a dollar store, although dollar stores are her favorites, she doesn't care, she just loves to shop. And so, you know, that bonds us a little more. And then a couple of years later, when my twin daughters are born, she becomes my savior because I am so overwhelmed with these babies and when they get home from the hospital, every Friday afternoon, she comes out and she spends the weekend with us. And when I hear that screen door squeak, you know, like open at the end of the day, I've been listening for it all day. It's like the cavalry has arrived, like reinforcements are here and I can finally just breathe, you know? And we don't even have an extra bedroom for her. We have, like, this mattress on the floor in the living room. And she's raised five kids, so she knows what she's doing. And when the babies wake up in the middle of the night, you know, I jump up and I hear her jump up. And she helps me prepare bottles for them. You know, I just have this image of us sitting in the baby's room, you know, in the stillness of the night, feeding them. It was just wonderful over the next couple of years you know she becomes even more an integral part of our lives she absolutely adores her grandchildren she buys them clothes and toys and she buys us groceries when funds are low you know she's not your typical cookie baking grandma you know that's not her thing she's still this tough Sicilian in fact one day when the girls are like two or three like I hear her say to them oh I love you so much I just want to punch you (laughs) but she also has her tender side and one day we notice that she is stealing things from them like little things like a barrette or like a stuffed animal and I don't know why until it hits me that she literally wants something to hold on to when she's away from them you know One day, you know, one year when they're about four or five, like every year, you know, this we send out holiday cards to show off these absolutely adorable twin girls, right? This is before the internet. This is the only way you could show off your children. So we would send out, you know, these generic, you know, seasons greetings cards. But this year, for just whatever reason, I decide to send out a Hanukkah card. You know, I see it on Oh Photo. it's easy, you know, press send and it goes. And of course I don't send it to my in-laws because they're witnesses, they don't do holidays. But I do send it to Fred's aunt who lives in the Bronx near them. About a week later, Fred gets a call from his mother and she says that since we have decided to raise our daughters as Jews, she can no longer be part of our lives my first reaction is just shock. I mean, we've never discussed religion. I thought at the beginning it was best not to, and so I had no idea that she would think this way. And then I'm hurt because this is me, you know? Like, how could she do this to me? And then I get angry because this has to be the most anti-Semitic thing anybody in my life has ever done to me, and this is family. But then I think, oh, you know, she, it was just a shock and she'll get over it, I'll just give her some time to cool down and of course she's gonna call me, she's gonna apologize and you know, everything will be okay. So I wait and a week passes and she doesn't call. Then another week passes, still no call. And by the fourth week it's clear, she's not calling. And then I dig in. And I tell Fred, you know what? If she does not want to accept us and how we may or may not raise our children, then I don't want her in my life, and I'm done. And to his credit, you know, my husband agrees, probably one of the reasons we're still married. And so that's it, we're done, and months pass. And there are times during those months where you know, the girls do something adorable and I think to myself, oh, I can't wait to tell Rita about this. And then I stop myself because I can't tell her. About nine months later, a new dollar store opens up in my neighborhood, and of course I think of Rita. And I want to call her. I get the urge to call, but I don't because, you know, I don't want to risk being rejected all over again. But each day, when I wake up, the urge to call just gets stronger. And one day, I just know I'm gonna call. And I have no idea what I'm gonna say But I just pick up the phone, and she answers on the first ring. And I say, hi, it's Tracy. And she says, hi. And I say, I miss you. And she says, I miss you too. And just like that, it's over. We never discuss it, we just step over that time in our lives as if it never happened, and we go on as before. And for the next seven years, she becomes my second mother. She is so proud of how I'm raising the girls and my advances in my career, and she's my ally. Because one day when Fred raises his voice to me in anger, she pulls him aside and she tells him in a way that only a Sicilian woman can, don't you ever talk to her that way again. In 2012, Rita unexpectedly passes away. And I miss her, I miss her every day. But there's so much more we almost missed. Like that time when the girls were five and they had their first and only ballet recital where they made it clear that they were much more suited to pratfalls and you know physical comedy than they were to graceful pirouettes. Or when they were eight and they told us ghost stories around the fireplace. So many lobsters, so many lobsters. I think there are tipping points in all of our lives that something happens and it either brings us closer to the people we love or it tears us apart. I would have been entirely justified all those years ago in cutting Rita out of my life forever. What she did was hurtful, it was cruel, and it was wrong. But in the end, I decided I didn't want to stand on my principles if it meant I had to stand there all alone. Right before Rita passed away, she was in hospice, and I went to visit her, and I stole a moment alone with her in her room because it was really important to me to tell her how much she meant to me and how she had impacted my life. And so I do. she starts to say something back to me, but she's got an oxygen mask on and it's hard to hear. Then all of a sudden, alarms just go off in her room and nurses rush in and they rush me out, and the moment's gone, and so I never hear you know, what she wanted to tell me. But I'd like to think that it was some variation of, I love you so much, I just wanna punch you.
1: Let's check with the man himself for the true story. Welcome, Santa Claus. Uh, call me Santa. Oh, ho, ho, ho. Merry Christmas. All right, Santa. Now, here's my first question. Do you... I'm they a... say you out there, dancer, prancer, stop ringing those bells. You, you see, Spike, I've got my reindeer and sled outside double-parked. And if don't come up to see the cops like having a ticket for the fine, and there's no money to pay with your flowers. Quiet thunder, quiet blitzen. All they keep ringing is bells, bells. So help me, next year I'll get myself a horn.
3: Mom and dad immigrated to New York in 1970 from Hong Kong for a better life with only $500 in their pocket they found an amazing apartment on Valentine's Avenue in the Bronx little did he know Valentine's Avenue was known as the heroin district during that time the city was just played with crime drugs and violence as a five-year-old and first-generation American growing up in the mid 70s the lobby of our building was like a fucking zoo Smell like shit and puke and there were like feces all over the steps and just piss dripping down the floor like a river. Once we got to our apartment and locked the doors, my mom and dad rarely let me outside to play. Growing up, I felt sheltered and alone because there were no kids my age to hang out with in the building and we were literally the only Chinese family in a predominantly Spanish and black neighborhood. I spent my days just watching TV and staring outside my window from our second-floor apartment. Outside, I saw the older kids, just smoking blunts and drinking 40s. Wow, they look so cool with their dark blue Wrangler jeans, high-top pony sneakers, and their shiny black members-only jackets, while listening to Grandmaster Flash and Jackson 5 on their Panasonic boombox radios. And they're all laughing, giggling, and talking about hanging out at the roller rink, picking up girls, getting them drunk, and banging the shit out of them. Banging the shit out of them? What the fuck does that mean? But it sounds like a lot of fun. That was a typical day in my neighborhood. When I was seven years old, I overheard one of the kids, Jamal, talking about Santa Claus. And I'm like, Santa Claus? Why? Then I realized Christmas is only a couple of days away, and they're all probably just bragging about getting like an Atari 2600 for Christmas. Then suddenly... Jamal was talking shit about Santa Claus Yo 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 Santa Claus man That guy's a mad junkie He's like you know Hitting the van And just like smoking that freebase And he's going to die before Christmas yo He's going to fucking get shot My jaws dropped to the floor I couldn't believe what I was hearing It's going to be the end of Christmas for everyone And I'm never going to get that Shiny red fire truck I wanted all this year so I ran up to my mom. Mommy! Mommy! David. Merci, huh? What's the matter? What? Mommy! 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 Santa Claus is a crackhead! And, and he's going to die before Christmas! David! What are you talking about? Who told you that, David? Who told you this? Jamal! The older kid outside! With the members-only jacket! The chocolate kid! The chocolate kid, Mommy! David. Jamal is a troublemaker. All he does is drink alcohol and smoke weed. He doesn't go to school. He's jealous he's not going to get presents for Christmas. Remember, Santa Claus is watching you right now. I just felt the weight lifted off my shoulders. And I can finally look forward to having good night's sleep tonight. Later that evening, I get really awakened by yelling, screaming in the lobby and the building, Get the fuck out of here, you fucking scumbag! And I see my dad wake up. I see his silhouette. Just walk to the dresser and put on his pants. And he goes to the closet and takes out this big wooden baseball bat. I just stare at him as my heart just pounds out of my chest. Not from fear, but just curiosity and excitement because he's going to go outside to play baseball. I slowly follow him and he turns around and he claps his hands, pop, pop, pop. I don't know what that means, but I just follow him to the door and he opens it, and I see a bunch of people standing outside with their pajamas and bathrobes and all holding pots and pans and knives in their hands. I can't see what they're looking at, so I crawl through the crowd, and as I get to the front, I see this old man standing there. He looks really frail and skinny, wearing this oversized red-and-white striped argyle crewneck sweater, and his face is really disheveled, and he has his gray knit beanie on his head. And I can't believe it's really him. It's it's Santa Claus. And Jamal's right, he is a junkie. And everyone is pissed off at him right now because they're not going to get the presents they want for Christmas. Oh my god. They're ready to fuck him up right now. And this is going to be the end of Christmas for everyone. And I'm never going to get that shiny red fire truck I wanted. Oh my god, what should I do? And I walk up to him and I look at him and I said, Santa, Santa, I, I, I love you. And he stares down at me and I see his eyes slowly start to water up and his mouth is just foaming from excitement. And this is probably the coolest thing I've ever seen. I want to just give him a big hug. And suddenly I feel a strong grip on my arm and I get pulled away It's my dad, he pulls me away like a rag doll. No, dad. Dad, what are you doing? Stop, stop. Throws me back to the apartment slams the door shut. No, it's going to be out Christmas for everyone. I'm never going to get that red, shiny fire truck for Christmas. And my mom picks me up and says, David, it's late. Don't make trouble. No ma fun. Fun gal, go to sleep. She tucks me in bed and I just cry myself to sleep. The following morning, I'm sitting down in my kitchen. My mom is making me eggs. My dad is bringing me juice. And they both sit down next to me. And my mom says, David, David, look at us when we talk to you. And I look at them in anger. That guy from last night was not Santa Claus. He's a crackhead. Don't worry. Santa Claus is safe and sound in North Pole. But, listen to me, if you do grow up to become a crackhead, you will never get presents for Christmas again, okay? Christmas Day, I got that shiny red fire truck. And looking back at it, I was just some naive and sheltered kid living in a crazy world. And I hope that junkie found a better place in life. And my mom and dad were not just my parents, they were like my guardian angels that protected me from crime, drugs, and violence. Now that they're in their 70s and 80s, I became their guardian angel.
2: Is that you, Santa Claus? I'm preparing for some Christmas sharing
1: But I pause
2: because Hang in my stocking I can hear the knocking Is that you, Santa Claus?
1: This is Risk. This is Louis Armstrong behind me now and we just heard from David Who? You can find a bunch of the stories he's told at the Moth in New York on his YouTube channel, so check that out. Before that, a little interstitial from our episode editor, Jeff Barr. And in a little bit, we're going to hear from our dear friend, Danny LaBelle, one of our all-time favorites out there at the Risk Live show in Los Angeles. But before that, another story that was shared out there in Los Angeles by actress Megan Hayes. She's been in everything from The Hunger Games to Sleepy Hollow. Here she is now with a story we call... Myths That's of Christmas
2: yeah, stocking, Is that you?
5: Hey y'all I haven't been home for the holidays in two years and tomorrow night I am hopping on a plane and flying back south to spend Christmas with my family in Atlanta. <sighs> <laughs> Fuck me. <laughs> the holidays have always been such a challenging time for me for like a myriad of reasons and Christmas. Well, Christmas has been a challenging time for me from the get-go. Like, I never got to believe in Santa Claus. Ever. Before I even got the chance to believe, my parents sat me down in our avocado green and sunshine yellow kitchen and they explained to me that Mama and Daddy buy you all of your Christmas presents. And if you hear all the kids talking about some fella named Santa Claus, we want you to know he's not real. I looked up at them with wide brown eyes, and I said, okay. I was three. (laughs) Now, look, I know I'm not the only kid in the world that didn't get to believe in Santa Claus. I know. But I am the only Christian kid. I know. And also, my father was a Southern Baptist minister. So, like, my parents were adamant that I believed in, like, oh, a dude that could walk on water, speaking serpents, a talking burning bush but elves making my Christmas presents and flying reindeer, unacceptable. (laughs) And also, y'all, my family is Southern. We are experts at (laughs) make-believe. Like, all my life, I watched my family pretending things were happening that weren't and weren't happening that were. And we kept up appearances at all costs because, oh my word, what will the neighbors think? Y'all, we were so worried about what people were going to think of us that when my family went to go see a therapist, we lied to the therapist. (laughs) We were like, no, no, we're we're good. We're fine. Why are we even here? How are you? (laughs) My sister got kicked out of a really prominent private school for selling drugs, but my parents told everybody that that school just did not appreciate her or her talents. (laughs) Oh, my dad, when I was nine years old, my dad had a nervous breakdown. He couldn't even remember his name, and he was hospitalized. It was then that he was diagnosed with schizophrenia, and he was in the hospital for several months. But we had to tell everybody that my father was on sabbatical, and he was on an archaeological dig in the Middle East. (laughs) I even remember one time when my dad was driving me to church one Sunday morning. I think I was maybe five or six years old. My dad was like a huge hot tea drinker. That was his jam. And so he's driving to church, and he turns uh, into the driveway too sharply, and his mug of tea, which my dad never had a to-go mug. He just you know, had the ceramic, old school, <laughs> like giant mug of tea, turned and spilled all over my legs, scalding hot tea. I remember bursting into tears and screaming and crying because I was in so much pain. And my dad, as he pulled into the parking space of the church and as he's opening the car door to greet one of his congregation members, he turns to me and he says, You better shut up. I don't want to see you crying ever. And he gets out of the car and greets the congregation members like, It's the best day in the world. And everything's fine. And I remember sitting there in that car seat just soaking wet and in so much pain in my patent leather Mary Janes just covered in tea and I just remember wiping my tears from my face and swallowing my pain and going into my Sunday school class and when my Sunday school teacher asked me like what happened why are you covered why are you soaking wet I just looked at her and I said nothing nothing When I was 12 years old, I remember being on the Emory University campus. My father was a professor at Emory University for 35 years. One of his students came running over to me and she was like, oh my God, I love your dad so much. He's like the sweetest guy in the world. He is just like a father to me. And I remember looking at her thinking, huh, I wonder what that's like. Because you see to the outside, our family was perfect. But behind closed doors, it was a three-ring circus, just covered by the illusion of peach cobbler and sweet tea. Now, despite the fact that I never got to believe in Santa Claus, I knew every word of the book The Night Before Christmas by heart because I made my mother read it to me 365 days a year. I would cuddle in bed next to her, and she would read aloud, and I would recite along, and she would brag to all her friends about how smart my Megan is. Why, she knows all the words to the night before Christmas by heart, and she is barely three. She is just that bright. Or maybe I desperately wanted to believe in a magical man that brought me Christmas presents every year for being nice. When I was eight years old, I found out that both my older brother and my older sister had gotten to believe in Santa Claus. Like, are you fucking kidding me? And not only that, like, you know how um, at the mall, every little girl gets in Santa's lap, and they're like, Santa Claus, I want a pony for Christmas, right? You know, every girl wants a pony. My sister got one, literally. My sister is a huge equestrian, and Santa Claus gave her her first horse. I decided that I was going to give my parents an opportunity to redeem themselves. I mean, not because I wanted to believe in Santa, but I just wanted to give them a chance to step up. So I decided that I was going to leave a plate of cookies for Santa Claus himself on the mantle, because ironically, our Santa-less home had a picture-perfect fireplace and mantle and chimney the appropriate size with a man with a round little belly that shook when he laughed like a bowl full of jelly. (laughs) I put the plate of cookies on the mantle with a note um, that had a bunch of words... All caps and underline for emphasis. These cookies are for Santa only! Exclamation point, exclamation point. No one else touched them. Santa, enjoy. Sincerely, Megan. I I had to ask my mom how to spell sincerely. I was eight. As I lay in bed that Christmas Eve night, surrounded by my 15-plus stuffed animals, I began to wonder, what if... What if there really is a Santa? What if there really is magic? What if I wake up in the morning and I have something to believe in that helps me get through the day? Because really, we all have our Santa Clauses. My sister telling everyone, including herself, that my father was a wonderful, wonderful dad to us. When as a child, I saw him abuse my sister and my brother. Or my father, the Southern Baptist minister, who believed that his public persona was all that mattered. I mean, he was everyone's Santa Claus. Everybody loved him. Everyone except his family. Or my mom, who since I was 12 years old has always been the courageous, valiant breast cancer survivor. So much so that I was plagued with the worry that I too was gonna to be high risk. So this year, earlier in 2015, I went to see a specialist in Burbank to see if I was gonna need like the Angelina Jolie test. And so, I uh, forget the technical term. <laughs> and uh, so she got my mom's medical records and I went into the office to find out the results. I was so nervous. And she sits me down and she says, well, um, you're low to regular risk because your mom never had cancer. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> and she said, That's right, your mom never had cancer. You're fine. I haven't told my mom that I know that. And I'm not going to. Because you know what? I don't want to ruin that for her. I woke on Christmas morning and I ran into the family room to see what had transpired in the night the cookies and the note sat untouched. And they sat there for three days until my mom finally threw them in the trash. Years later, as an adult, I asked my mom, like, why? Why didn't I get to believe in Santa? Why didn't I get to believe? And she just looked at me and said, oh, honey, because we didn't want to lie to you. <sighs> and that, 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 is the shitty thing about Christmas. Because sometimes you are just met with the stone cold truth, the truth about your family and the truth about the holidays, that they're not always what you think, they're not always what you hope for. But I'm going home tomorrow night to Atlanta anyway. And you know what? I'm bringing cookies. because in spite of it all, I still believe in magic. Thank you.
4: Be here With lots of gifts and Christmas dear I've got the Christmas spirit hey hey, hey. I've got the Christmas
6: got two short holiday tales for you the first one is uh, my my Christmas story I I'm Jewish and uh, I went to yeshiva as a kid very Jewish thank you what's up yeshiva people uh, you know there's a lot of crap spoken about Santa Claus and yeshivas they, they, they try to make you feel good about the fact that we're disassociated <laughs> They're like, oh, I always hear this. Like, It's fraud, what they're telling their kids. It's fraud. <laughs> Complete lies. And these kids, they hear that Santa's real, turns out he's not real. They don't trust anything for the rest of their lives. <laughs> but then they tell us that Hitler's real and it turns out he was real. I don't think that's any better. <laughs> so... I was a kid, we had a cleaning lady who lived with us who's still a great family friend of ours and she's from Peru. Her family lived in Valley Stream and they were having a Christmas party and shockingly I was a heavy kid. <laughs> still heavy, I'm consistent, I I stick with things. Um, and they didn't have a Santa Claus at their Christmas party and she expressed how upset she was about this to my mom, and my mom volunteered, oh, I have a heavy son. (laughs) (laughs) You can have him for the night. Take him and... Generous family. So my mom says, hey, listen, I come home from school. Listen, I I told the cleaning lady that you could be Santa Claus for a family in Valley Stream for Christmas. because they don't have a Santa Claus, so uh, they're going to get you a Santa suit and everything. But my mom uh, was very worried that I would be absorbed by the Christmas spirit. They were afraid I'd be sucked in by that Christmassy joy. So to combat this, my mom bought a bootleg VHS of Space Jam. So this was the rule. You get to watch Space Jam while everybody's having Christmas. Then they'll announce that Santa's there. You go downstairs, you be Santa. Don't touch any of the food, it's not kosher. And then go back upstairs and you can watch the rest of Space Jam. Do not partake in the warmth or joy You're strictly there to keep the myth alive. (laughs) And that's exactly how it went down. I got Space Jam. I watched it with silhouettes of people walking in front of the screen. Downstairs it sounded like a whole lot of fun there was rice and beans and like little tins on a a buffet, I I wasn't allowed to touch that, wasn't allowed to have the cheer, but at a certain point they're like, I think Santa's here! (laughs) And then I come downstairs just as Santa, oh ho ho ho, and then I sit down, and just what felt like hundreds of little Spanish kids, one by one, sat on my lap, most of them asked me in, in Spanish, Santa, is it going to be the queen, said the Navidad, it going to be and I'm like, si. <"Sí." laughs> <laughs> oh, ho, ho, ho. <laughs> <Feliz> Navidad. <laughs> and then I went upstairs and watched the rest of Space Jam. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> That's the first holiday story. The second holiday story is for a Jewish holiday, the holiday of Tishabav. Not one of the big popular ones <laughs> because it's a holiday of mourning and sadness. <laughs> kind of the opposite of Christmas. Although there's some mourning in Christmas, I think. Right? Christmas morning. <laughs> Tisha B'Av, by contrast, is when. We get together, we go to temple, we don't sit on the chairs because they're too comfortable. And we, when you're mourning, you can't be comfortable. And you take a little candle and you sit on the floor and you mourn the loss of the temple which was destroyed 2,000 years ago because a loss of real estate for Jews should never be taken lightly, never. So I was home for Tisha B'av, about maybe six years ago with my little brother Sam, uh, well with my whole family, but my little brother Sam and I uh, left temple a little before everybody else, and I should also mention that I was dog-sitting at the time for uh, a friend of mine who had a little black poodle named Happy, which is the wrong name for Tisha B'av. <laughs> And I tied Happy up in the back of the temple when we went in, and I got him afterwards. And we were waiting by the car to go home, and my parents uh, were still in temple, so we're waiting for them. And this guy pulls in this big black SUV-tinted windows, and he gets out and he goes, Hey, what are you boys waiting for? I go, Our parents are in temple still. We're waiting for a ride home. And, and, and he... Immediately, and this is 100% true, he takes his keys and he throws us the keys and he goes, here, take my ride for the night, boys. <laughs> so my brother and I look at each other in and, and kind of disbelief and we're like, what? Huh? No, we can't do that. What are you talking about? What do you, mean, what do you mean take your ride? He goes, let me tell you something. There was a different time before you boys were around when people trusted each other. <laughs> And, and there was caring and it meant something to be in a community. There's no more community trust and I'm sick of it. And I wanna tell you guys, if I was your age and somebody threw me the keys to a nice SUV like this with a leather interior and tinted windows and a box of cigars in the back and some money in the glove compartment and satellite radio, then I would take it and go to Manhattan for the night and have a good time. So that's what I suggest you guys do. So I said, Sam, I think this is nuts. I don't think we should do this. And he's like, Dan, there was a time of community trust. You can't turn your back on these opportunities. This is, this is important. This is a Tisha B'av miracle, man. I was like, I do kind of want to see how this plays out. I think. I said, but should we really do this? He, he goes, he wants us to do it. And the guy goes, come on, boys, make a decision. And we're both like, okay, we'll do it. We'll take the car. And then he's like, great. Just leave it where you found it. And then he leaves. And we're like, I, okay, I guess we're doing this. And we get into the SUV and we start first, we're just driving around. We're like, okay, it works, it drives. This isn't, impri- like, the whole thing was very surreal. We've got Happy in there with us, you know? <laughs> and we're driving around the neighborhood and then we're like, this is, this is fun. Let's uh, put on Hot 97. Feel like gangsters, you know? <laughs> so we're blaring hip hop now. We light up some cigars. We're driving around like, this This is the best Tisha Bob ever. This is amazing. <laughs> So I'm like, all right, let's go to the city. My brother Sam's like, maybe we should invite our other brother Josh to come. I'm like, oh. he went home with my par- our parents, you know, it's like, do we want to risk it? We go back with the car. He's like, I don't know, we'll tell him to meet us like on the corner and we'll all go to the city. This will be fun. So I said, okay. And we called Josh and we're like, hey Josh, someone uh, gave us an SUV. <laughs> bunch of money in the glove. I don't think we're going to touch it, but it's there. There's a bunch of hundreds, and um, there's a box of cigars, and we got Hot 97 going. It's a good time. We should really do Tisha B'Av different this year, I think, you know? And we're like, "Uh, do you want to come? We're going to go to the city. Should we pick you up? He's like, yeah, come by the house. And Josh, being sensible, ratted us out to our parents and said, I think they're getting into some really bad stuff. (laughs) So we pull up at the house, and uh, we're expecting just Josh to jump in, but we get swarmed, my parents and Josh, coming right at the other. My dad's like, what are you doing in this car? Whose car is that? We're like, community trust, don't worry about it. He's like, there is no such thing as community trust. My boys are idiots. He starts screaming to my mom, Vivian, I'm having a heart attack. My boys are idiots. She's like, you're giving your father a heart attack. Get out of the car. We're like, no, community trust, community trust. She's like, get out of that car right now. And I'm like, see, we shouldn't have just gone straight to the city. Sam, we got to pull away. So we start pulling away. My mom opens the passenger door and Happy falls out. Boom. And, and we hear... And, and, then, and then my brother Josh is like, you killed Happy. You killed Happy. Happy was fine, everybody. Just so you know, he just had a little fall and he got up. He was fine. Happy as ever. And... Uh, <laughs> But it became a very dramatic scene, and we're like, okay, well, get happy back in the car. We get happy back in the car. We're driving around. This is in Long Beach, Long Island. We're driving around Long Beach, and we're like, ah, it's not the same anymore because <laughs> well, the phone is getting flooded with texts. My boys are idiots. Your father's having a heart attack. He has high blood pressure. There is no such thing as community trust. <laughs> it's Tisha B'Av. It's a very bad time for the Jews. You're bringing bad omens upon the whole family. You know, <laughs> This is a time of destruction. So, like, all right. Uh, my, then, then my mom calls up, and she's like... Uh, she, she, oh, one of the things they said when they were... Whose car is this? We said, well, oh, we got the guy's name. My mom's like, I Googled him. I Googled this guy. He's not a good guy. I found an article that he spilled hot coffee on someone on the Long Island Railroad. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they're saying it wasn't an accident. It's a controversy. <laughs> <laughs> you have to bring this car back right away. <laughs> so my brother Sam and I were like, all right, it's causing too much trouble. It's not worth it. We had our fun. We'll, we'll bring the car back. And uh, and my mom <laughs> my mom texted us the guy's address because she did a full Google background on this. She's like, don't leave the keys. Like, you Bring him back his keys so they can't accuse you of anything. He's probably a drug dealer, all that money in the glove. So we're like, maybe he is. I don't know. So we bring the car back. we go up to this guy he lives in an apartment building, we buzz him from the address and he comes to the door and, and he, he goes, "What the heck are you, what boys doing back so early? you're supposed to go to the city, go to the clubs, have fun." And we're like, yeah, we, we, uh, we told our parents it got to our parents anyway, and they freaked out that you know we have a stranger's car and everything and they, they, they were really insisting that we bring it back. He's like, "You don't tell the parents, boys." they don't understand community trust. And we're like, I know. that Nobody understands community trust. Just the three of us, right? That's it. There was a time, everyone. <laughs> and he's like, all right, all right. And then there's a voice from inside the apartment. Who is that? It's a female voice. And he goes, oh, my wife can't know about this. <laughs> she wasn't in on community trust either. <laughs> he's like she, she wouldn't like it if she knew I did this but uh, damn it guys I really wanted to create some fun for you boys and I'm like yeah, it's a time of destruction we couldn't do it anyway the temple is destroyed and we gave him his keys back and then as we're leaving he goes if you're ever around again I also have a boat <laughs> alright guys I'm Danny LaFelle thank you very much happy holidays everybody
2: so it's been a long year every new day brings one more tear till there's nothing left to cry my my how time flies like little children Let's start a brand new year
1: That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Over the Rhine, behind me now, and we just heard from our dear friend, Danny LaBelle. Hey, if you heard a holiday story on this episode that got you thinking, hey, I got one of my own, pitch us any time of year. We will take pitches for Halloween episode stories or holidays episode stories, right? If you've got a story about Christmas, New Year's, Thanksgiving you know, Hanukkah, any of those things, send them to us any time of year at risk-show.com slash submissions. And with that said, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, everyone. <laughs> Happy end <laughs> of 2016. We will see you next year. Folks, next year's the year. <laughs> Take a risk.
2: This is coming, salvation or make fails of
4: It was the night before Christmas when
2: all to the town that a creature was sounding Santa, Santa, I'm very sorry. We have to go now. Santa, Santa, we've got to go. Donder and Bitson are calling you. Santa, I believe you, but we've got to go. Good night, Santa. Good night, everybody, and Merry Christmas to one and all.